And let's again just ask God to bless our time in his word. Father, we again just come to you, Lord. We settle our hearts. And, and Lord, we know that your word is so living, it's so powerful, and so effective in our lives. And Lord, we, uh, apart from you, we can't understand it, we can't apply it, and we can't taste it. We can't even hear it. And so, Lord, right now we just ask, Lord, we've, we've tasted, Lord, we've known you, and we just pray that you would please anoint your word, that you'd breathe on it, breathe on our hearts, Lord. Help us to hear what you want to say to us tonight. Oh, Lord, that you can use the, the words of a frail man to communicate your eternal truth. It's a wonder, Lord. But we pray tonight that you would do it, Father. Make your word live. Fill our hearts. Bless this time. Anoint your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 23, verse 1. It says, And Sarah was 107 and 20 years old. These were the years of Sarah's life, or the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, the same as Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham stood up from before his dead, and he spoke unto the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The passage begins as we come into Genesis chapter 23, um, by the account of Sarah, the wife of Abraham, and now her passing. And we're told that she was 127 years old at the time of her passing, the time that she died. And what we have before us is really the first uh, mentioning or the first instance in the Bible of a funeral or a memorial service. And that's what is going to take place throughout this chapter, is all of the events surrounding the death and the burial now of Sarah. Now, this isn't the first death in the Bible, obviously. We've seen uh, death come into the world through sin. We've seen Cain slew his brother Abel. We've gone through quite a bit of human history. The flood came in, and uh, we saw the entire world perish. So death is nothing new at this time. But what is new here is the first time that we see the human reaction or the human response to death and uh, really the effect that death can have upon a person um, and we see it from God's perspective here as he lays it out before us in the Bible. And so here it is before us. Now, oftentimes when I talk to my kids about life and I talk to them about um, their future and their plans and, and, and the things that they're going to do when they get older, I, I talk to them and I'll say to them that they should live life backwards. And, and what I mean by that or what I'll say to them is that, you know, make a goal, establish a goal or an end game or somewhere that you would like to be and then work yourself backwards from that. So once you see what you want to do or where you want to be, then begin to ask the questions of what is it going to take to get there? What do I have to do? Uh, what, what is step A, B, and C in order to reach that ultimate destination? And then keep that in your mind, where you want to go. Because if you lose sight of your ultimate destination then you're going to waste time, you'll get distracted, and you'll lose vision. And so I'll tell them that. And so as they talk about what they're going to do after high school, I'll ask them and I'll say, well, what do you want to do? And if they say, I don't know, then I say, you ain't going to college. <laughs> you know, that's simple. If you know what you want to do and you have a vision of what it's going to take, then we can talk about what it's going to take in order to accomplish it. But if you don't have a goal and your eye on something, 
If the calling and the destination isn't established, then the path is always going to be unclear. You're just going to waste steps. You'll waste money and you'll waste time. Now, if you look further ahead than just the goal of what you want to do in this life, what every one of us will come to is the conclusion that where we all end up is in the grave. Every one of us that's here in this room tonight is ultimately someday going to come to the end of our 107 and 20 years like Sarah did uh, in our story here. All of us one day are going to die. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 tells us that it is appointed once for a man to die and that after this comes the judgment. In other words, that if we look beyond just the goals of what we have in the here and now, we find that we will come to an ending place where we will lay down even the life that we have here in this uh, earth. So, so interesting statistics uh, concerning the mortality of man. First of all, for every 10 people that are born, 10 people die. Did you know that? Also, 53 or 55.3 million people die every year. That's 152,000 per day. It's 6,300 per hour. 108 people die every minute, which rounds out to about two every second that die. Everybody dies. And here's one more very fascinating statistic on death, just in case you want to be encouraged tonight. And that is that when you leave this planet, except, of course, it be from the rapture, when you leave this planet, you will actually leave this planet with less than what you came in with. Because you came in with a body. But you don't even take that with you when you leave. You leave that behind too. So what we leave here with is absolutely nothing. And I think it's important for you and I to continually remember and keep the context of everything that we do in this life within the framework of knowing that someday we're going to leave it all behind and that we're going to die. Now what that does for you and I, once we realize that and, and walk in that truth, is it causes us to ask the question, the big question, and that is, if we're all going to die and it's appointed for us to die and there's a time when we will die, then what is the purpose for the time that we are here living on this planet? Or, to say it in a more cliched way, what is the meaning of life? Why are we here? What's the purpose? Now, I actually was curious about that question. What is the meaning of life? And, and I wanted to know how often that question is asked or Googled or, or, or asked of Siri. And so I searched it and I actually found out that it is number 25 amongst the top thousand things that are typed into a Google search over the course of a year. It's number 25, is what is the purpose or the meaning of life? And that's a great question, isn't it? It's a very important question for everyone to know why is it that we are here on the earth in, in the big picture? And, and if you want to know the answer, thank God we have the Bible, because God tells us the answer to all these things, right? The purpose of life really comes down to three things. There are three reasons why you and I are on this planet. And for whatever amount of time that we've been given by God, that only He knows, whether it's 10 years or 50 years or 70 years or whatever, whatever that is, He knows what it is. There are three things for every one of us to do, accomplish, or experience while we're here on this world that is the meaning of life. Number one 
is salvation. One is salvation. Is that we were born into this world separated from God. We were born into this world lost in our sins, alienated from the life of God, cut off from Him, and headed for an eternity in hell because of sin that resides within us. But God in His grace sent His Son to a cross to die and to pay the price for the sin of all of humanity. And for all of the time that a person's heart is beating on this planet, God sends His Spirit, the invisible presence and essence of His person, to every life to knock on every human heart and to draw that person to the conviction that there is more than what simply meets the eye or the senses, that there is an eternity and that there is a truth. Moreover, that same spirit that seeks to convince us that there's more is seeking to convince us that we're separated from that God, but that he has made a way for all men and women to be reconciled to him in the person of his son. Furthermore, that same spirit orchestrates conversations, arrangements, hearings, things that happen that bring the necessary information into that life so that a person can respond to the knocking call of the Spirit, ultimately give their life to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And when that happens, the person has fulfilled the initial purpose for life on this earth, and that is to be saved, to be born again, to be regenerated. That is number one. The second thing, the second purpose and meaning of life, why we're here on this earth is to be prepared for eternity. Number two is to be prepared for eternity. You see, once we leave this earth, Jesus said that he was going to prepare a place for us. And he said that whosoever would believe in him would never perish, but would have everlasting life. And so one day, ultimately, everyone who is saved will be in God's kingdom where they will be eternal, where there's no more death, no more dying, no more transition, no more change, no more sickness, none of the things that accompany the fallen world that we live in now, and will be in His presence forever. And so God is preparing a place for the believer in His kingdom in heaven. But part of His purpose for you and I while we're here on this earth is to prepare us for that place. And what that means is that every circumstance, everything that happens to us, every part of the way we're wired, every opportunity, every venture, everything that we put our hand to, God is using in some way to shape us and mold us for what's to come in our eternity in heaven. And so purpose number two, or the second meaning of life in this world, in this context, is for us to be prepared for eternity to come. And then the third thing, the third meaning of life or thing that all people God has given is that we might fulfill the purpose that God has for us here. Now that goes beyond just being prepared for the kingdom that's to come. It means that God also has something for you and I to do while we're here on this earth that's going to fulfill part of his purpose and bring glory to him in some way. And that part is different for every one of us. It's as unique as your fingerprint or the face print that you have, that you and I have. God has something for all of us to do. And so to be saved, to be prepared, 
and then to be used by God. That is the meaning of life. That's why we're here. And however many years have been appointed for you, those three things must happen. Now, I ask you this question. What fraction of those three are you fulfilling or have you fulfilled? And when we look at the life of Sarah, the one who is the theme of our study, we see that she fulfilled three out of three. She was, in fact, saved. God had gotten a hold of her life. The Bible testifies in Hebrews chapter 11 to the fact that she was a daughter of faith, that she believed in the Lord. Therefore, she fulfilled the first purpose that God had for her life. We also see that she was prepared for eternity. Her name at the beginning of her account was Sarai, and it represented her identity at that time. But with God working in her life and her walking with him, there was a change that happened. And that change was reflected in the fact that God gave her a new name. He changed it from Sarai to Sarah, from contentious to princess or mother of many nations. And so we see that God was using the things that were happening in her life to prepare her for what was yet to come. And she was responding to that hand of God that was seeking to change her. And thus she fulfilled the second reason why she was here on this planet. She was changed from what she was to what she should be for all of eternity. And then third of all, we see that her purpose, the reason why God had her on the planet was to, in her old age, to give birth and receive strength to conceive seed that she might bear Isaac into the world that the plan of God might move forward. That was the purpose for which God had put Sarah in the world. And we see that she fulfilled that purpose. Being past the age of menopause, but by faith she received strength to conceive. And she bare Isaac by faith. And thus she fulfilled the purpose that God had for her life. She was a three for three. She fulfilled all that God had for her on this planet. And so that same question is asked to you and I. Can I ask you tonight... The meaning of life, are you fulfilling, are you finding its purpose and its meaning, what it's for? Are you born again? Do you know Jesus Christ personally? Has the Spirit of God who knocks continually and seeks to draw us to a relationship with Him, has He gotten in? Has He gotten through? Has He gotten your attention? Or is it simply, simply something that you're pressing off or playing with or riding the fence, but you have yet to really receive and have that gift of salvation from God, you'll never know the meaning of life. You'll never know why you were created until you come to that place of giving your life to God and being saved. Are you being prepared for eternity? Are you embracing the circumstances that God is bringing into your life and allowing in your life, no matter how difficult and challenging you find that they might be, and letting him use those things to change you and change me that we might be what he wants us to be for all of eternity? Are you seeing your life through the lens of eternity and interpreting all the things that are happening in accordance with what his plan ultimately is for us? And thirdly, are you discovering the purpose that God has for you? Why did God put you in the world in such a time as this with the gifts and the personality that he has given to you uniquely to affect the kingdom of God for generations to come and to bring glory to his name. Are you walking in those things? See, if we lose sight of the fact that we have an appointed time and that there's a purpose for this life, 
then ultimately what's going to happen is that we're going to waste time and we're going to complain. We're going to complain because we're going to argue against what God is allowing in our lives. We're not going to see those circumstances in the context of what God is trying to do. And so we come on hard times financially or relationally or in our marriage or however else it might come. Or in our health or in our mental stability or just in the difficulty of the throes of life. And rather than embracing those things as being from God and part of his purpose to change us and mold us, we kick against it and we rebel and we say, no, God, I don't receive these trials and these difficulties. I resist them and I don't want them. I don't want to be changed. We're complaining. Why? Because we've lost sight of the fact that God uses those things for our good and for his glory for eternity. We waste time when we fail to embrace or search out and seek out God's plan and purpose for putting us here in this world. See, when we say goodbye to it all, we leave with less than what we came in with. We don't take our career, our degrees. We don't take our attainment or our possessions. We don't take any of that with us. All of that is here left behind. And so the question that's before us constantly as we look into the face of eternity is why on earth are we here? What's the purpose? And if we lose sight of the fact that God has a purpose and a place for us, then we waste time pursuing things that ultimately will be left behind and that mean absolutely nothing. It's appointed once for a man to die. Sarah fulfilled her 127, and she would enter the gates, and God would say, well done, good and faithful servant. You got three for three. What about you? What about me? Where will we end up on that? Interesting thing as Christians, when you get saved, when I get saved, we enter into a lifetime of school. Do you understand that? You know, sometimes you see someone who's a doctor, you know, and sometimes someone's a special doctor. They're like a doctor of some kind of special surgery. And you're like, how long did you go to school for that? And they're like, well, I did it four years of this, and then four years of this, and then four years of that, and then two years of residency, and three years of, and then 14 years of paying it back. And, and you, you know, you look at the whole thing, and you're like, wow, you know, that, that person deserves that MD or that DR before their name and the whole thing. Let me tell you something. That doctor, lawyer, they got nothing on the believer. You know why? Because you and I are in school until the day we die. We are constantly being challenged, constantly going through testing, constantly taking electives year after decade as God is teaching and shaping and preparing us for what he ultimately has in our future. We are in school. We don't graduate until our heart stops beating. And if we forget that, we waste time. We lose vision. We lose perspective and we throw our future to the wind. We don't see that in Sarah. But we see Abraham secondarily in this text, not only Sarah fulfilling her years, but we see Abraham coming to mourn and to weep for Sarah as this funeral service begins. It's the first mention in the Bible of this weeping and mourning. We don't see that anywhere up until this time, and we see it in Abraham, and the first time we see weeping in the Bible and mourning in the Bible is at the passing of this great woman of God, this Sarah, this wife, this beloved wife of Abraham. And I think it's important for you and I to recognize that it is normal and it's okay for even a believer to weep and to mourn and grieve over the death of a spouse or over the death of a loved one. Now, Abraham knew, no doubt, where Sarah was. He knew that he would see her again. He knew that he was dealing with a God that could resurrect and would resurrect. 
The Bible tells us that it was clear in Abraham's mind he was seeking a city that had foundations whose builder and maker was God. He knew he was eternal. And yet in spite of knowing that, it says that he still wept and mourned. He didn't say, oh, well, Sarah, I guess I'll see you later. I've been waiting for this day for a long time. And I'm looking forward to the day when I see you in heaven, ancient in your youth again. That's going to be great. He didn't do that. He mourned. He wept. There was pain, grief over the fact that now Sarah was passed away. But it does need to be mentioned, though it's absolutely normal and right for even a believer to grieve at the passing or the prospect of death. It's important to understand that the grief is different for the believer than it is for the unbeliever. The Apostle Paul says it like this. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In verse 13, he says this. He says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. And when he says asleep, he's talking about those that have died. Physically, they have passed away. He says that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. In other words, what Paul is saying here is he's saying that the sorrow that the believer has over the passing of a believer is different than the sorrow of someone who has no hope, the sorrow of an unbeliever. Why? He says in verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then even so them also which sleep or are dead in Christ will God bring with him. In other words, the reason why our grief as Christians over death is different than the grief of a non-believer is because the grief that a non-believer has when someone passes away is a grief of a hopeless separation. The grief of a hopeless separation. They think that that's finality. That they, they have passed away, we're never going to see them again, and there's a separation unto oblivion. Well, there, there's never going to be a reuniting. Now, I have had the horrible experience of being at the bedside of people that are separated in this context of unbelief. I think one of my low points in the ministry was being at the bedside of a, of a son, a 28-year-old son, who was dying from complications of overdosing many times on opioids. And I was there with his mother when he flatlined and he went away. He left, and you could see that he left. And the sound that she made is a sound that I never want to hear again, but it's a sound I've heard a couple of times. The hopeless sound of a mother losing her child in an untimely way. It's a hopeless separation, and it's a grief that is deep, and it's a, it's a wound that just festers, and that there's no healing, there's no hope in it. But for a believer, it's different. It's not a hopeless separation, but rather it's an unplanned, unwanted, and unexpected relocation. In other words, we, yeah, there is a separation, but it's not that I don't know where they are, and it's not forever. I know exactly where they are. And I know that in time, I will see them again. There's going to be reunited. And that changes the entire context of the type of grief that it produces in the life. Because I know where they are. It's not hopeless. It's hopeful. I know where they are. They finished their race. You say, well, if that's the case, then why is there still grief? Why is Abraham weeping and mourning? Why do we feel it like we feel it when someone dies, even though we know that we're going to see them again? I think very practically, it's first of all because there is a sense of loss, isn't there? 
especially of a spouse. I know that if my wife were to go and, and, and be with the Lord, I would immediately feel like half of me was just cut off. And that confidant that I have, that companion, my friend, is gone. And though I know I'm going to see her again, and I have that hope, and it's secure, there's even a sense of victory of crossing the finish line. There's a, 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 a crazy kind of almost joy in a sense. But yet the pain of having that separation is that that earthly loss is still real it's still valid it still hurts it still causes pain and that's real there's grief in that the loss we also don't like change too much as humans do we i know i don't like to be interrupted i let my daughter drive here tonight she's got her permit she's got a road test scheduled in a couple weeks pray for me <laughs> and her you know but she was approaching a light a little slower than i would have liked you know and i knew it was going to turn yellow and I'm I can't tell her to, you know, it's one of those conflicts where it's going, go, go, but no, no, no. And it turned yellow, and, and I, my plans were interrupted. You know, and I felt like, red light, you know, you guys, I, I hope I'm not the only one here that has that problem, you know. We don't like change. We don't like being interrupted. We don't like things to not go the way that we hope or the way that we think. And sometimes death is so inconvenient because it just interrupts where we are and what we want. And we grieve over it. Sometimes we grieve because of regret, sometimes because of guilt. Things that we did, things that we said, things that we wish we said, things that we didn't do that we wish we did. And we feel it. We feel the pain of that uh, guilt that's there, the mistakes and the, the, the misalignment of our, our priorities and the rest. There's a song that used to come on. I remember um, you know, when I'd work in the trades and the radio would be on in the background. There was, I forgot even who it's by, but that song, Cats in the Cradle, it's one of those oldies, you know. And it's just a song about this dad who, you know, this kid who wanted to hang out with his dad and dad was too busy. And then the kid grew up and the dad wanted to hang out with the kid, but now the kid was too busy. And I hate that song. I hate it. Every time it comes on, I just want to throw the radio across the room because it just makes me feel so incredibly guilty, like no matter what, I'm going to ruin my kids, you know. And, and I carry that, you know, I think about it, you know, someday, you know, did I give them everything? Did I, did, how much time did I waste through my mixed up priorities and the things that I was doing that are completely useless for nothing, you know? And I don't want to feel that feeling. But then I realize, first of all, not only will God use all those things, but I get grandkids if I live long enough. And, and I love that idea. I think God is so gracious to give grandkids. Because what it is, it's a chance where I'm no longer like carrying the pressures of trying to make it in life and raise kids at the same time. Now I, I've gotten through the first part, and I get to just love on kids and fill in all the empty spaces that their bonehead parents are leaving out. I can say that because I'm the bonehead parent right now, you know. It's a gift from God. He redeems it. But one of the reasons why it bothers us when people die is because it puts us face to face with the things that we should have or the things we shouldn't have. And now we can't change those things. And Abraham had his share, didn't he? We consider his life. Lord, why did I do that sister thing? No. You understand what I'm talking about. The third thing that we see in this passage, it's in verse 4. It's the last phrase there that we see. Abraham says, give me a possession, he says to the children of Heth, that I might bury my dead out of my sight. The third thing that we see concerning this passing and the closure that goes with this passing 
is the very real principle that life goes on after someone dies. Now, grief is right and grief is normal, but grief must not be indefinite. In the Jewish culture, when someone would die, they would mourn for a period of 30 days, and they would mourn. They would get it all out in that time. The Egyptians would mourn for 70 days. That was their custom, and there were different customs in different places. But after that time, that 30 days or that 70 days, whatever that span was, then they would pick up and they would realize, I'm still here and life goes on. And so there's more. There must be more and they move on from there. God leaves one person behind when he takes another and it's time for that person to get up and keep going. When I do pre-marriage counseling with couples, um, one, of the, one of the most important things that we talk about is building on the right foundation. You're building a marriage, you're building a future, you're building a family, and anything that you build, you want to build it on a foundation that's going to cause the structure to stand up over time. And so when we talk about building our lives, whether it's a marriage or just our lives, on the firmest of foundations, there is no other foundation except for Jesus Christ. The Bible says that, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There's no other foundation that any man can lay except that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so to build our lives on Jesus Christ. And in the context of marriage and building a marriage, what that means is that I must love and live for Jesus Christ even above the love and life I have with and for my spouse. That's a challenging thing when you think about it. Keith Green was an artist from you know a generation ago some of the songs we still sing that he wrote, but one of the songs that he wrote was called, I Pledge My Head to Heaven for the Gospel. And one of the verses of that song goes like this. He says, I pledge my wife to heaven for the gospel. And then he said this. He said, I told her when we wed, I'd surely rather be found dead than to love you more than the one who saved my soul. And I remember the first time I heard those words, I was challenged by it. I was like, wow, those are radical words. That's a radical declaration that he made. To be able to say that to his wife. I mean, to think it is one thing, but to say, hey, I'd rather be found dead than to love you more than I love Jesus. I might even think that my wife would be offended if I were to say that to her, or that I should be offended if she would say it to me. But when it comes to building on this foundation, that must be key. That's pivotal. When I love Jesus Christ more than I love my wife, it allows my marriage to thrive, and here's why. Because it causes me to see, and listen carefully, it causes me to see that my marriage is a part of his purpose for my life and for hers. My marriage is a part of his purpose for my life and for her life. Meaning that my eyes go beyond my spouse and my relationship with her and they're higher set upon his purpose and plan for my life and what he has for me. And my marriage is only a part of that. Now, that's a good foundation. Here's why. Because when the bad times come, when the worst, you know, you know how we say that for richer, for poorer, good times and bad, and sickness and in health and all that stuff? We just mouth those words. Do you know why those words are in the vows? Because it happens. Sickness happens. Poor health happens. Poorer happens. Difficulties happen. But when they happen, and they do, if I'm realizing that my marriage is a part of his purpose and plan for my life, 
then I embrace those things as that he's sovereign over them and he's going to use them for his greater purpose in me. If my marriage is higher than my love for Christ, when those things come, I'm out of here. I'm done. I don't want to deal with this. I'll find another situation where these things don't exist. I've put his purpose for my marriage aside and I've just made it about me and what I want out of it. Do you understand why it's important to love Jesus more? Okay, now apply it to everything else in life. When it comes to the death of a spouse or the death of a loved one, our purpose is his purpose first. What does he want for my life? What did he make me for? And therefore, if in his business, in his plan, he ordains it that someone be taken out of my life against my will, my allegiance is to him first. And so therefore, though I mourn and grieve, that period of mourning and grieving comes to an end as I realize, God, you've left me behind. Which means you have some more for me to do. Which means there's a future and a hope in you that I have apart from this person and you're going to redeem it and use it for your good. And so, Lord, I stand up and I bury my dead out of my sight. Because, God, what you want to do with me now, I, I, I embrace it. I receive it. I'm ready for it. And so Abraham leaves Sarah. He says that she might be buried out of my picture. This isn't coldness on Abraham's part. Bury her out of my sight. Get it? That's not the idea. What he's saying is, okay, God, you've left me here. You've taken her. What's next? And that's just the right attitude. It's the way it's supposed to be. Well, now comes the funeral. And I love this. We're going to breeze through the rest of this chapter as we look at some amazing interaction between Abraham. And we see that this primitive culture was not as primitive as you might think. Notice what Abraham goes on to do and say. It says that the children of Heth answered Abraham, saying unto him, Hear us, my Lord. You are a mighty prince among us. In the choice of our tombs or our sepulchers, bury your dead. None of us shall withhold from you his sepulcher, but that you may bury your dead. And so Abraham stood up and he bowed himself to the people of the land, even to the children of Heth. And he communed with them, saying, If it be your mind that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and entreat for me or plead for me to Ephron, the son of Zohar that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is in the end of his field, for as much money as it is worth, he shall give it to me for a possession, for a burying place amongst you. And Ephron dwelt among the children of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the audience of the children of Heth, even of all that went in at the gate of his city, and so at the gate of the city, you guys know this is official, this is the court system, saying, Nay, my Lord, hear me. The field give I thee, and the cave that is therein I give it to you. In the presence of the sons of my people give I it thee, bury thy dead. And Abraham bowed down himself before the people of the land. I love his humility. He communed with them back up in verse 8. He bows down before the people of the land in verse 12. And he spoke unto Ephron, in the audience of the people of the land, saying, But if you will give it, I pray thee, hear me, I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying unto him, My Lord, hearken unto me. The land is worth four hundred shekels of silver. 
what is that between me and you? Barry, you're dead. Barry, it's worth 400 shekels of silver, but, but that's nothing between us. Just take it. Barry, you're dead. You can, you can have the land. And Abraham hearkened. It's good. He listened. He heard, in other words, what Ephron was trying to say. Sometimes people can be so thick, right? We don't hear. They're saying it, but we're not hearing. Oh, really? Give it. I can have it, huh? No, Abraham heard. And Abraham weighed to Ephron the silver, which he had named in the presence or the audience of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, current money with the merchant. Shame on you and I if we don't hearken in those situations, right? The field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave, which was therein, and all the trees that were in the field that were in all the borders round about were made sure unto Abraham for a possession in the presence of the children of Heth before all that went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre. The same is Hebron in the land of Canaan. And the field and the cave that is therein were made sure, that is by covenant or by contract or by deed, unto Abraham for a possession of a burying place by the sons of Heth. Now, this is such a fascinating passage to me, this whole interaction and exchange between Abraham and the sons of Heth. Because the first thing that happened, if you look at it and see what's going on between them, is first of all, there had to be a zoning application and approval. Really, he had to go before all of the sons of Heth, and before even approaching Ephron, who who, who possessed the land, he had to clear it with the rest of the leaders and governors of the city to see if they would accept that Abraham buy that plot of land for that purpose. He went to them and essentially said, hey, would you accept in your zoning that this land be purchased for this purpose? If it be possible, intercede for me with Ephron that he might sell me that field. So there was a zoning application and approval. Well, it was approved. So then they move into part two, which was the negotiation. Now Abraham approaches Ephron himself in the presence of all the witnesses and they begin to negotiate now how much is this transaction going to take place for. Now here's a remarkable thing. Is that the price that Ephron was asking, 400 shekels of silver, was extremely exorbitant. According to cultural reports of current values of things at that time, land was worth about four shekels per acre. And so this price that Ephron gives is just way above and beyond what the land is worth. But that was part of the culture. It's the way that they did business. It's the way they do business even to this day. When you go into the Middle East and you want to negotiate with someone over the price, it starts very, very high. Oh, I will sell this knife to you for $200. What? You're out of your mind, $200. I'm not giving you $200 for that. That thing's not worth $10. I'm like, you know, I'll give you $10 for it. What? $10? You insult me. Get out. Get out of my shop. And you say, I'll leave. And then they say, come back, come back, come back, come back, come back, you know. And then you begin this thing. And it's just an endearing thing to them. If you don't do that, they feel insulted almost. And then, you know, you get down to the point where you're in the ballpark of what things are actually worth. And then you make a deal. And then you're best friends for life. You know? And that's the culture and how it works. But Abraham isn't into all of that at this point. He says, whatever the price is, whatever you named, that's what it's going to be. And so 400, there's a negotiation, and then there's a transaction. The amazing thing is to realize that there was an economy, and there was actually currency, and there was banking in those days. Look at verse 16. 
It says in verse 16, it says that he hearkened, and at the end of the chapter, it says that it was current money with the merchant. In other words, there was a standard. There was actually a system whereby money was measured and weighed in those days. The next thing that we see is that a survey had to be drawn. Notice in verse 17. It says that the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field, the cave, and all that was therein, the trees that were in the field, that were in all the borders round about, were made sure. A surveying crew had to come in and actually mark where the borders were and delineate what all the trees and what exactly was included in the property. Amazing, isn't it, the detail? And then in verse 20, they're told that there was actually a deed that was issued to Abraham for the selling and the final sale of this land. So zoning approval, negotiations, transactions, including banking, surveying, a deed was drawn up and then signed. And then after all of that's done, Abraham then buries Sarah in the cave of Machpelah, which was in the field that he bought again from the sons of Heth. And thus there was closure in this uh, death of Sarah now, uh, on things. Now, what's remarkable, and just as we get ready to close our study tonight, is that this piece of land that Abraham bought from uh, Ephron the, the Hittite is the only deeded possession that Abraham had in all of his life on earth. He never had, he never had a home. He never had a, a, anything else that was his or that belonged to him. But this one deed he did hold in his hand uh, that was there as a burying place where Sarah would be buried and then, of course, the descendants that will keep coming up uh, in all of this uh, from, from here on out. But in this, there's this remarkable thing. And I want to leave you with it as we, we close out our study tonight. There's a layer in this chapter that gives to us a picture that goes deeper than just the surface uh, actions that are happening here. Those are, are there, the historical and, uh, and even the things that we draw from. it. But there's type here. When I say type, what I mean by that is that God is using the things that are happening with his people to illustrate something else, a greater picture, a bigger picture, a prophetic picture. Remember in chapter 22, the whole picture that was painted with Abraham the father offering his only begotten son that he loved, putting the wood on his back and him carrying it up the hill. Remember that whole thing in a perfect picture of the cross and then the prophecy that in the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen. There was even a ram with his head caught in, the, in, in thorns. You know, amazing picture of Jesus and the cross, the father offering the son. When we get into chapter 4 next week, and I hope you don't miss it, if you can Make sure you're here next week as we get into chapter 24 and we see the saga continue as the father seeks out a bride for the son. It's an amazing chapter. It's one of the most remarkable chapters in all the Bible. There's another incredible picture when we get into chapter 24 of the spirit building a bride for the son and all, every detail of it. In fact, you can read ahead and look at it for yourself and you'll see it. You'll go, oh my goodness, this is remarkable. It's amazing. But in chapter 23, you almost say, you know, you know I see 22, I see it in 24, but does chapter 23 speak to anything? Yes, it absolutely does. We've seen that Abraham, Father Abraham, is a type, a picture, a shadow of God the Father. Now, he's not God the Father. Don't anybody say, Nick said Abraham was God. No, no, no. 
He represents him in the story, in the picture. Just as Isaac represents the son, he represents Jesus. Rebecca will represent the church, the bride of Christ. It's representation, it's type. Well, if Abraham, the father, represents the father, then Sarah, his wife, represents the bride of the father. You say, the bride of the father? This is getting weird. No, 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 no. When you read it, the Old Testament, you'll see that God speaks of Israel as his bride. Pastor Bobby actually read Ezekiel chapter 16 just this past Sunday where God specifically says, you Israel are my bride. I went and found you and prepared you and washed you and married you and made you beautiful. You're my spouse. You're my bride. You read many of the prophecies of the Old Testament. You see that God says that over and over again. The whole book of Hosea is an illustration of Israel being the bride of God the Father. But what happens in Genesis chapter 23, the chapter that we just read? Well, we see that there's this strange separation that existed between the father and the bride after the offering of the son. Did you pick it up? I don't know if you noticed it, but did you see in the beginning of the chapter, the beginning of chapter 23, that it says that Abraham came to Hebron, to Mamre, in order to weep and to mourn for Sarah. Abraham was in Beersheba with Isaac. Sarah was in Hebron in Mamre. Why were they separated? There was a separation between the father, Abraham, and his bride, Sarah, at that time. We don't know why. We don't know what the terms were, but what we do know is this. Is that after the death and resurrection of God's Son, Jesus Christ. There absolutely was a separation between God and Israel. Not a divorce, not a casting away, but there was a separation. We see that Jesus, who himself said that he was the heart of the Father, we see that he was weeping and mourning over Jerusalem because they refused the advances of the Father. If you had known, even you, in this year day, the things which belong to your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes, Jesus would weep and mourn. Why? Because that day, Israel was estranged. They were separated, and they died. Not forever, but they died. And what happened? We see that Abraham purchased a place where Sarah would be preserved. And she would be placed there. And it was deeded land, the only deeded land that Abraham had. And thus God, he didn't put away Israel forever, but he did preserve for her a place. What place? Deeded land in Israel, in the promised land, a portion of it, a fraction of it, where she would be for the end. And so we read the prophecy of Ezekiel, the prophecy of Zephaniah, the prophecy of Isaiah and of Jeremiah and all the prophets that says, God says, in the last days, I will bring you again into your land, the land that I have called in the mountains of Israel. And they've come. It's been fulfilled. 1948, Israel becoming a nation again. And here's the amazing thing is that when Israel, in our day that we're living and watching right now, when Israel came back into their land, they actually bought it. They paid for it. 
they moved back from where they were in Europe, in Russia, in Poland, in the various places from around the world, and they came into Palestine and they paid cash for the land and they were given a deed. They actually have the deed to the land in which they live. And we've seen that fulfilled in our days. And here's why that's so remarkable. And it ties into everything. We're closing in just a second. It's remarkable because God said that it would be in the last days that we would see that happen. Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 8, it says, it will be in the latter times, the hindermost end, that Israel will be gathered back into her land. And God would again pour out upon her the spirit of grace and of supplication. The amazing thing is that you and I have seen the fulfillment of what all of that is looking forward to, Israel being regathered in the land in these days that we're living in. And we're watching some incredible things that speak to us that our time on this planet is almost over. And there's so many things happening right now. I don't know if you guys are following what's going on with Russia and Iran and Israel and us and Syria and all the rest, but there are so many things that are pointing to the fact that Jesus is coming so incredibly soon that we're right at the tail end of this time and so we end where we began and it begs for us the question are we ready are we ready do we recognize that the meaning of this life the meaning of our life is to be prepared for the one that's to come by being born again by being changed on the inside to reflect what will be for all of eternity to fulfill the purpose and leave the mark that God has for us to leave on this planet as we get ready to say goodbye. He could come at any moment. And the question is, are we ready for it? Oh, Father, we just thank you tonight for this. And, and we thank you for the pictures. We thank you, Lord, for the incredible um, and amazing thing that, that, that's here before us. And, Father, we would ask you, Lord, that you would search our hearts tonight. I pray for anyone here that doesn't yet know you personally, that you might bring them, Lord, to that place of salvation and surrender. And Father, I ask for the rest of us, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to see our lives in the perspective of the time that we have left. Lord, we need you. We need your wisdom. We need your revelation. We need your help. We pray, Lord Jesus, that where we've made it about our own purpose and our own things, that you would forgive us, we pray, Lord, that you would give us grace to love you more than anything else in this life. Be it our wife, our ambitions, our goals, our possessions, our talents, the things that make us move, Lord, the things we're excited about. We ask that you'd help us. And Father, we thank you that as a wise and faithful shepherd, you reveal these things to us. And Lord, we say tonight, we declare before you that we're willing to be led, we're willing to be changed. We're willing to be used. So help us, Lord. We thank you so much for your tender care and your gentleness, Lord. The way you remind and the way that you transform and change. So help us, Lord. And we just thank you tonight. We pray, Father, that you give us ears to hear as it applies to each one of us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.